Hello, Aisha here. Just before we get started, a heads up that in this episode we mention mental health issues, including suicide. Stick the kettle on. It's time to talk. I don't mean you and me, lovely listener. Obviously, we talk all the time. We're good mates. I'm not breaking up with you. I mean all of us. This Thursday is officially Time to Talk Day in the UK. It's meant to encourage people to make a brew and talk about mental health. Sounds like a good idea, right? Things like Times of Change really make a difference because people will will see other people talking about their mental health and then they'll realise, oh, okay, well, maybe I can too, and then they're less ashamed. I'm Glenn Close, and I'm supporting Time to Change. Mental health. It's true that things like this are helping to melt the stigma surrounding mental illness, that we all need to look after each other and look after ourselves a little bit better. But is it enough? Fewer beds for mentally ill patients and inadequate support in the community. But services are struggling to keep up. One in five children referred by GPs for specialist help is rejected for treatment. So today we're going to hear... In the UK, one in four of us will experience a mental health problem at some point in our lives. Suicide remains the biggest killer of men under 45. And according to the latest stats, one in eight young people have a mental health problem. So what can be done? One big problem is access to treatment. We've heard plenty of reports lately about how mental health services are being underfunded, leaving many people stuck on waiting lists. But what are the wider social and economic factors that are causing poor mental health in the first place? Is the economy itself damaging our mental health? Is modern life making us sick? It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. And this week, I'm asking, are we having the wrong conversation about mental health? I'm really pleased to be joined by three people who have different areas of expertise when it comes to mental health and the economy, from personal experience through to academic research. First up is Becky Winson, who is an organiser here at the New Economics Foundation and committed trade unionist. Becky, welcome to your first weekly econ pod. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm really right. excited about this. I decided to go with trade unionist instead of trade unionette, as yeah. we have discussed. Yeah, I'm disappointed about that, to be yeah. honest. I'm sorry. I regret everything. Uh, next up, we've got the writer and researcher Hannah Riaz, who's studying the impact of gentrification on mental health. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. Uh, and finally, we've got longtime Neff Brainbox on well-being, Annie Quick, also a returning pod guest. Very nice to be back. Am I right in saying that you've been helping the ONS measure well-being inequality? Yes, yeah, we have been. Mm, that's yeah. the goss around the office. <laughs> there is some grain of truth there, so oh, nice. you guys should get some better gossip, I must say. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we saved that for the credits at the end. Um, all right, so over the past few years, it seems like we've had more and more of a public conversation about mental health. Even the royals have spoken publicly about their experiences, gosh golly. But are we talking about the right things? So we're going to start with you, Becky. Some people are saying that we found ourselves in a mental health epidemic these days. Would you say that the reasons behind that are being adequately discussed? No, basically. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, conversation happening about the best ways to treat mental health so I, or, or to, to cope with having a mental health problem. It's the Time to, to Talk initiative, for example. Like, It's great. Like, people should be talking more about their mental health reaching out is a good way to get help. What I don't think we're talking enough about are the causes 
behind a lot of mental health problems. And I think the reason for that is possibly because to do so means looking at a lot of stuff that's wrong with the structure of society generally. Like it makes mm. the conversation much more difficult to have. But I think until we start having that conversation, we're not really going to see the back of any mental health epidemic anytime soon. Mm. So at the moment, you say that we're having the wrong conversation. So we're focusing too much on kind of, yeah, dealing with it rather than the root causes. Mm -hmm. So in a kind of nutshell, what do you think are some of the root causes? Is it to do with the way that we work, the way that we live? Where Where's the kind of the core of this? I mean, in a nutshell, capitalism. <laughs> um, I mean, to sort of deepen the answer a bit, I mean, if you look at the way that the world of work is changing, for example, 20, 30 years ago, it was quite common to sort of walk into a job, know that it was a fairly secure job, that you were going to be there for a very long period of time unless you chose otherwise. You would probably be protected by a trade union recognition agreement, even if you weren't actively involved in trade unions themselves. And fast forward now to today, growing numbers of people are experiencing zero hours contracts. Even those who are on permanent um, employment contracts and apparently are sort of safe are not. Like not many people stay in work for a very long time. There's a growing threat to rights at work. It's not surprising to me that that has a detrimental effect on the mental health of a lot of workers how is anyone meant to feel secure in mm. themselves when there's no security at work, which is where we spend most of our lives? Mm. So we're going to carry on doing a bit of a deep dive into that later. But for now, a shocking figure from the UK Council of Psychotherapists said that rates of severe anxiety and depression in unemployed people rose over 50% between 2013 and 2017. So following on from what you were just saying, Becky. Annie, how has the government's austerity programme uh, affected our mental health? What role does that play in all of this? Um, a significant role. So, you know, the points that Becky was just making about work and about insecurity at work also just go for insecurity in other aspects of your life. So countries that have higher levels of unemployment, but a good, solid, unstigmatised welfare system where people know that they have security to put food on the table, even if they're out of work, that protects people from the negative well-being impacts of, of unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, austerity has been a, a massive issue. I would like to say, though, that a lot of the automatic ways we might think about poor mental health being a response to economic problems is right at the bottom. So it's really easy to say, yeah, poverty and all the various forms of poverty are clearly um, drivers of mental health. But actually, it's the whole economic system which is driving poor mental health. So more unequal countries, more economically unequal countries are seeing worse outcomes in terms of mental health for people across the population. And that's really worth thinking about for a second. So say um, if you're uh, on a, a steady income, you've got a secure job, um, things are going relatively well for you, you're more likely to experience depression or anxiety if you are living in a society that is more unequal, even if you've had exactly the same amount of money and security. Mm. It's the whole, it's our whole kind of political economy, if you like, the whole kind of economy that we live in, um, with extreme and very corrosive levels of inequality. And often sort of behind that is a sort of sense of status anxiety, mm -hmm. a sense of, yeah, I guess we, we start getting into sort of the, the crux of neoliberalism, right? Like mm -hmm. indivi very individualised, constantly trying to make it to the top. And that, mm -hmm. that's, that affects everyone, even if it affects the people who are struggling the most, the worst. Mm -hmm. We all lose out really in that kind of economic system. Mm. So it's like that, uh, the book, The Spirit Level or the movie. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's all about how if, yeah, as you say, wherever you are positioned in society, because we're always 
having to strive for more, like even if it's not materially, uh, we're constantly feeling like unsatisfied and, and precarious in some way. Right? Exactly. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the evidence also comes for physical health, which is obviously closely related. But it's kind of harder to dismiss when people are literally dying decades younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you, this is not people's, you know, being overly sensitive about diagnosing their own anxiety. This is very physical reactions to the kind of society that we're living in. And it's interesting that life expectancy is stalled since 2011 Mm. Um, and and that's astonishing really in one of the richest countries in the world and just to quickly follow up on that so what's the the role of debt in all of this because I know that obviously since we've people say that we've recovered from the financial crisis in in lots of ways but one in four people using mental health services are also struggling with problematic levels of debt so what's your kind of read on the role that plays just incredibly solid evidence, evidence base that being in debt is very, very bad for people's mental health and also the mental health of their families and people that they're related to. So real kind of um, that feeling of sort of deep insecurity that you get. And there's also some interesting research about different kinds of debt. So it's not surprising that being in debt, like a mortgage debt, is less damaging to your mental health than being in sort of short term uh, loans. But yeah, that's, I think, one of the major well-being trade-offs in terms of our reaction to the financial crisis is that we traded off in some ways unemployment, which, yeah, that's bad for people's mental health and well-being. But we did it in a lot of ways by making work much poor quality, more insecure, which is awful for well-being mm-hmm. and also uh, driving personal debt, which is also awful for well-being. Mm. All right. So, Hannah, you wrote a short story in an anthology of work called The Colour of Madness. Um, I'm saying that like you don't know it. You do. Um, For everyone else, Hannah wrote a short story um, in an anthology of work called The Colour of Madness about how BAME people interact with the mental health system. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, So I guess I'll talk a bit about my my story. Um, I think I inadvertently started writing about mental health, in particular about South Asian women, Mm -hmm. because they typically tend to be quite invisible population, but also mental health remains quite stigmatised within the community. So I ended up writing about a character who was a doctor herself, Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, it's kind of an exploration of whether she does or doesn't try to commit suicide, and Mm -hmm. um, other people kind of... I guess, commenting on that as well. And the whole anthology, I guess, is also a reflection on that. It's conversations from different angles, from different parts of the um, BAME community. It's hard to say. Yeah. Um, And I guess it's an attempt to give voice to people who are commonly left out of the conversation. But I think also importantly, uh, when we talk about mental health and we talk about the epidemic, when we look at the prevalence, even of common mental disorders, not all communities are affected equally. Mm. And obviously, again, it's a huge question, but what would you say are some of the drivers of those uh, kind of differentiations in impact? Well, definitely the social factors that we're, mm. we're talking about. Definitely from my area of work, I look at the built environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I focus mm. a lot on cities and the effect of, of urban life on mental health. And we really see that. We see poverty, the changing nature of work, we look at pollution, mm. look at crime, the fear of crime, housing, housing quality, availability, all those things have effect on mental mm. health. We're going to circle back a little bit later to the point you made about the built environment and talk about gentrification, which I think is one of your specialist areas. But for now, so sticking with the economy for a second, um, traditionally we measure economic success in terms of GDP, which as we know is 
deeply imperfect plug for my BBC podcast about GDP. But that, <laughs> but that doesn't measure the quality of people's lives, as we know. Um, and so we talked a little bit about this on last week's episode about why economics needs a rethink. But Annie, how do you think that our lives and our mental health might change for the better if we change the way that we measure the success of our economy? I think it seems geeky, but I really think it's so fundamental it's, it's the whole way that we think about economics and what we're trying to achieve. Mm. And it's actually incredibly deeply embedded in the way that economists think, but also in the way civil servants think and the way policymakers think. Uh, I spent a bit of time in government um, working as a civil servant. And uh, yeah, of course, departments have other indicators that they look at. Like it's stupid to say, oh, only people only care about GDP. Of course, they care about other stuff, you know. The energy people are looking at energy prices. The health people are looking at health outcomes. But the point is, when it, when it comes down to the crunch, if there's a trade-off between economic growth and another outcome, economic growth constantly trumps it, mm. right? And that's the real danger. So, for example, I was working on health inequalities and well-being, but we were in, like, a, you know, a, a departmental bit of the um, Department of Health. And actually, as soon as anything got really serious to do with the sort of the economics of how we did things – Everything was just trumped by the Treasury. So it was like, yeah, fine, you, you health people. <laughs> you can do your health care. But as soon as we were like, actually, we need to improve the economy and change the way that economics is done, the Treasury were like, well, you can do whatever you like, but as long as you don't challenge economic growth. Yeah. So I think really dephoning economic growth, uh, yeah, I think is totally central. And there's loads of other ways we can do it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, loads of different measures. And there's no shortage of other ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lack of willingness and, and a lack of kind of understanding of how broken our current way of doing economics is. Mm. I mean, I think that's interesting because I guess some people would say it isn't necessarily broken. It's very much serving the purpose it was designed to, right? (laughs) Right. So things like debt and things like precarity are not accidents of the economic system as we know. They're like, they're things that hold it up and make it function. I'm going to stop (laughs) going on a rant, but I feel very strongly about this. Um, Becky, you're the guest. I am not. What do we need to change about our economy to make our mental health better? So obviously we've we've touched on a lot of these things already, but... um, People like Gwyneth Paltrow and the Goop podcast people are making a killing selling so-called wellness products like vaginal eggs. Um, that, that is one. She was sued for it. Um, so, yeah, the wellness industry, is that the solution to all of our problems? No. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> My uh, vaginal eggs! <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, definitely uh, vaginal eggs is a form of treatment for... No, just no. Um, I mean, I think... Sorry, what was the question again? I'm so distracted by, like, yeah, the memory of Definitely. Gwyneth Paltrow's vaginal eggs. <laughs> completely Aren't forgotten. we all, every day? <laughs> the question was, what do you think we need to change about our economy to make our mental health better? And is, is the wellness industry the answer? So if you answer that one, mm-hmm. no. So what do we need instead of, of eggs? Um, mm. I mean, I think you summed it up really well, actually, in your in your mini rant just then, which is yes. that this isn't a site. This isn't like an unintended consequence. This isn't like an accident that that this that precarity is part of our system. Like our system is predicated on keeping people insecure. Mm. So workers are much easier to control, and you have to pay them much less if they're scared of getting the sack because there's not an adequate welfare system to support them um, when they don't have any money and it's not that difficult for them to walk into another job. It's much easier to run a workplace based on those things than it is to run a workplace 
based on the idea of giving your workers a decent wage for what they're doing and also like having the aims of your business not just be to make money but Mm. to keep your workers happy Mm. when I was a, a trade union shop steward it was one of the sort of like biggest wake-up calls I had really and and what sort of got me politicized was realizing that the way our system is structured it's not written in the stars like people make deliberate decisions to run things the way they do whether or not that's the healthcare system or their business or the housing market or whatever and I think what Annie was talking about just then about um, this idea that the only measure of success is a financial one and continual financial growth it's sort of the only bit of anything trickling down that I believe in. Like, mm. that idea infiltrates the entirety of society. It's interesting, the whole idea of the only thing that does trickle down is that feeling of not being enough. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, in big big corporations like Google and Twitter and stuff, you have such a, a kind of awareness of how shitty a lot of the staff feel. And so they have things like sleep pods and they have ball pits and they have bars and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Does that kind of stem the flow? You know, that that idea that kind of corporations are cottoning on and being like, people are miserable, let's, you know, give them sweets at three o'clock on a Friday. I know it doesn't deal with a systemic issue, but is that kind of enough to to mitigate some of these bigger mental health problems um, that people are feeling? And is therefore the answer, if we can't do complete systemic overhaul, put a ball pit in every charity? I mean, I couldn't... This is me speaking from anecdotal experience, from from my personal experience. So the last place I worked, I mean, it's, it's just... This is laughable. Like, I still can't believe this happened. And one day I will turn it into a satirical novel. But anyway, um, so I was the the shop steward um, in my workplace and they had made an entire floor's worth of people redundant, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, They sent an entire customer service team packing because they could hire them cheaper if they employed them in Cardiff for the same the same work being done in Wales and not in central London. Mm. So a load of really long-standing members of staff was shown the door and it was one of the most stressful things that I've been through representing those workers because there was an immense amount of anguish caused for mm-hmm. them but also for the people they were leaving behind who were seeing like their friends disappear from their daily lives basically mm-hmm. and about six months after this had all been announced and it had all gone through and um, we were all called upstairs to the new um I can't even remember what they what they called it now innovation space I oh, think God. Uh, which was full of sofas which cost probably about half of my yearly salary at that point mm. and a ping pong table and this was literally in the space where people had had worked and spent you know up to 20 years of their working life mm. and what it did is it completely lowered people's expectations of how their employer should deal with their mental health problem that they that the employer had caused because you immediately started to see like well you know they're doing this for us mm. like you know they've, they've they've got us a ping pong table for god's sake they want us to be happy mm. you know that there's there's like there's some nice sofas we can go and sit on and have meetings on they want us to be comfortable the fact that I can't do with my workload isn't isn't their fault because it's not intentional that I'm unhappy. I'm not quite sure it was done deliberately mm. by the employer. I'm not sure if they were that clever, but that's what happened. The the wellness industry as a whole does that across a lot of society. This idea mm. that yeah, if you're not eating salad at six a.m., it's your fault. Mm. That you're not getting paid enough to, to yeah. uh, make ends meet. Um, 
All right. So, Hannah, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned earlier that you did some work around the built environment. Mm-hmm. And I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about the impact of gentrification and the spaces that we live in on our mental health. Obviously, housing has a, has a big impact. But what about the communities themselves? Um, and does that affect everyone equally? Yeah, so I guess mm. I've uh, just started a PhD on on that. Um, my focus is actually on young people and children and actually reflecting on some of the conversation that we've had right now. One of my biggest concerns is we often focus this conversation on adults. And actually when we think of children and children's mental health, but also children's mental health as a predictor of um, adult mental health mm-hmm. later on, um, and then how that carries on also kind of intergenerationally. There's huge costs of that. A lot of the work around the built environment focuses on on adults. So I've started looking at, at young people. I'm in the early stages of, of conducting that research, but a really good example was last week I was actually teaching uh, a group of year nine psychology students from South London. And we were looking at um, healthy life expectancy across different boroughs. And then we were looking at prevalence rates of common mental disorders. And they were kind of guessing what it might be in Southwark and Lambeth. And they threw some figures out. And they threw some quite astonishingly high figures, sort of 70%. Mm. Um, And then when we gave them the sort of the 25% marker, which is what it is, which is still higher than the national average, we asked them why. They kind of threw out a range of reasons which were, you know, things are really bad. It's really difficult, whether it's they feel unsafe, whether it's stress at home. Also, the the feeling of inequality that they're also experiencing. So they were talking about, you know, the vegan shops in mm. in Richmond, which is why they have a higher healthy life expectancy versus those in Lewisham. You know, they were really acutely aware, and these are year nine students. So for them, that kind of discrepancy between the actual figure and what they perceived it to be was actually a stark indicator of how they feel about where they live Mm. um, and actually what's going on around them. Looking at something like gentrification and urban regeneration, which is supposedly, and I mean in London and like cities across the globe, it's it's used as state-led policy to Mm. plan and develop an area. We know that there is loads of negative consequences around that. Mm. We're we're coming to the end, but thinking for a moment about the future, what's yeah one big change that that we need to see happen? So it can be anything from uh, services and provisions. We've talked on the podcast before about um, what's it called UBI, UBS. Where do you all think that we need to start? My one's really boring, but it it is sorting out our welfare state. Mm. Um, and and that, what does that mean to you? It not only means more money. Um, and money going where it needs to go, but it means creating a system which is unstigmatizing, mm. which is really goes back to its roots of this being a collective insurance provision that we all have a responsibility to put into and a right to take out of. Mm. Something a little bit further up from a safety net, actually, so you don't have to fall fall down onto it yeah. <laughs> when when you slip up, right? That it's something that is there collectively for all of us. Like um, a cushion or a bolster. A lovely, a safety yeah. cushion. Yeah. One question on that, um, which is obviously we've talked a lot about like the issues being kind of deeply psychological in society around the way that we think about ourselves as workers and the economy generally and stuff. Do you think that there would be enough within the the current state of affairs, enough public support for something like a welfare system that looked like that, bearing in mind that people are consistently internalizing this kind of human capital way of approaching things? I think so, yeah. And I think actually quite a lot has changed since 2008. 
in terms of people's attitudes and there's a real understanding that like people fall on hard times not as some weird thing that happens occasionally and it's their fault but it's just like a normal part of everyday economic living in, in the modern UK and I think there's more and more understanding of that um yeah so I'm I'm full of hope for that okay um Becky take us home what are we gonna do I think um so I've I've written a lot about my personal experiences of of, of mental health and and when I started doing that and writing about it and talking about it, it seemed quite obvious to me that inequality and mm. um, poverty and, like, the entire mess that is our benefit system was... Like, surely people are, will acknowledge that that can be a cause of mental health. And actually, when I started doing research, there is evidence there, there's a lot of evidence, but it is not talked about and so I would say that time to talk, basically, mm. what we need to be talking about is the link between mental health problems and, and medical conditions stemming from them and the background that some people are coming from and, and the way the system treats them and the way the system treats all of us. Mm. I think once we start unpicking that, you start to see a lot more reasoning that helps you sort of build up a impetus for the things we need to change, like the welfare system and the world of work and things like that. Mm, mm. I think, yeah, I mean, for what my two pence is worth, I, I feel like in this conversation, it's the start of many conversations that I don't hear being had that often, explicitly linking capitalism and the economic system that we're in with mental health. Yeah, we have so much data, especially in this country, that goes back yeah. to the 1940s yeah. that traces all sorts of health, health outcomes to social class and socioeconomic status. That, will, that gives you a predictor of, you know, whether it's your parents' social class and whether you get cardiovascular disease at the age of 40. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with uh, mental health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it is well known in health circles. Yeah, so, but outside but, of that. But it's the fact that the people who are working yeah. on health don't have the power to make the big economic changes yeah. it's like the people with yeah. the knowledge are in the wrong yeah, sector yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the economists are just learning about productivity and inflation yeah. <laughs> yeah so the data is there it is time to talk just about something else okay all right thanks all of you for joining me thank you becky winson if people want to hear more about the work that you're doing where can they where can they go um i'm not you got sure. a blog you just said you had a blog i mean i yeah i do I have a blog it. where it, is it i mean it's it's not been updated for a very long time um it, i wrote an essay people might be interested in reading uh in a in a book called know your place uh which is by dead ink books it's the paperback edition has just come out mm -hmm. uh, so if you google dead ink dead dead ink books you will probably be able to order it it's also in a lot of waterstones and there's loads of really good essays in there as well like mm. it's really worth reading are you on twitter i am on twitter rebecca winson not becky i've got my posh name on twitter you got rebecca winson did you yeah oh, that's good well done early on an early adopter uh all right hannah riaz thank you for joining me same question where can people hear more from you twitter mm -hmm. yeah at hannah riaz but also i really encourage everyone to get a copy of the color of madness mm. it's amazing it's really heartfelt really personal but also really insightful yeah wonderful and annie quick how can we keep up with you so quick hey. <laughs> oh, i haven't done a pun a... this episode <laughs> i haven't heard a, a quick pun for at least a day so that was exciting <laughs> <laughs> i also managed to get annie quick on twitter so yeah really? just at annie quick uh, and other than that, the New Economics Foundation website, where I haven't been writing so much recently, but there's loads of stuff with me banging on about well-being and inequality. Wonderful. Years past. 
Mm, thanks, Annie. Okay, that is it for this week, lovely listener. If you or someone that you know has been affected by the issues that we've been talking about, we've put some links to organisations that might be able to help in the description for this episode. If you've had a good time with us, please tell someone about it. And if you want to get in touch, we're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. A lot of people have been tweeting us recently and we are loving it. So please keep it up. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield with help from Sophie Jenkinson and Fergal O'Dwyer this week. And we were brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Thank you.